You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 91, The Cavalry. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Without your help, this show could not exist. And don't forget, if you sign up now, you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free. Anyway. Well, I'm moving again, and I don't have access to my books. The last time this happened, I paused the narrative to do a guide to the infantry of the Napoleonic era. So, in this episode, we'll continue on that theme, this time tackling the cavalry. One of the things that makes Napoleonic warfare so compelling is that there were so many intangible elements that could contribute to success or failure on the battlefield. It's relatively easy to quantify and analyze things like tactics, logistics, equipment, speed, and training. But there were also fuzzier concepts like morale, momentum, fear, and the will to win that could make the difference between victory and defeat. The cavalry specialized in these intangible elements. They had two great advantages, their speed and the terrible power and seemingly irresistible momentum of a group of horsemen charging at full gallop. On campaign, mounted troops generally served two functions. They were the eyes and ears of the army, scouting the terrain and keeping tabs on any nearby enemy forces, while also screening their own army attempting to intercept any enemy horsemen trying to do the same. This kind of skirmishing became particularly intense after a battle, when the cavalry of the victorious army pursued the defeated army, and the cavalry of the defeated army attempted to screen their retreat. The second function of the cavalry was on the battlefield itself. They were sometimes useful for their speed, to fill a hole in the line, or counter an unexpected enemy movement. But, generally speaking, cavalry units were massed together and held in reserve, to wait for the right moment for a charge. If executed properly, a cavalry charge was very difficult to resist. They could be absolutely devastating, shattering or destroying any unit in their path. A well-timed, properly conducted charge could turn the tide of a battle. On the other hand, a poorly conducted or mistimed charge could easily result in disaster for the horsemen. Cavalry combat was almost more art than science. For mounted troops, confidence, aggression, and fearlessness often meant the difference between life and death. So it's no surprise that cavalry units encouraged an attitude of supreme confidence. Or maybe you could call it arrogance, depending on your perspective. To the cavalry and the people who admired them, they were the bravest and most dashing soldiers in the army. To their detractors, they were arrogant, overpaid prima donnas who hogged all the glory while the poor infantry did the hard fighting. 
Archduke Charles of Austria, one of Napoleon's greatest enemies, once said that he considered the French cavalry inferior to Austria's in basically every aspect, from their equipment and horses to their riding skills and even their tactics. But he considered the French cavalry the better of the two services, solely because of their morale and will to win. So perhaps it's no surprise that the cavalry attracted aggressive and daring personalities, and that Napoleonic militaries cultivated these attitudes among their mounted units. The cavalry also included a lot of dandies and social climbers. This was by far the most glamorous and romantic of the three branches of ground troops. All over Europe, rich and influential families jockeyed to get their sons places in the most fashionable regiments, the way similar families today might obsess about getting a child into an elite university or a good internship program. Placement in a good cavalry regiment provided a chance to rub elbows with society's best and brightest. The cavalry had the best uniforms. They didn't have to worry about wearing clothes practical enough to march in, and a gaudy uniform made it easier to tell friend from foe in a chaotic, dusty, hand-to-hand fight. And, as I've already mentioned, confidence could be the difference between victory and defeat. As ridiculous as it may sound, a snappy uniform could make the troops more confident. The cavalry also had a reputation for living large. Parties, wine, liquor, tobacco, and womanizing were a part of military life for all branches of the service. But this was especially true of the cavalry. It will probably not surprise you to learn that this was also the branch of service where dueling was the most popular. Especially in the more fashionable regiments, dueling was practically an obsession for some officers. But that's a topic for another episode. Ideally, cavalry made up about 5-20% to of a Napoleonic army's strength. The British and Prussians put more of an emphasis on infantry, and so they were generally at the lower end of that range with the French, Austrians, and Russians near the higher end. There were good reasons they were vastly outnumbered by the infantry. For all their power, cavalry units were only situationally useful. When it came to the most basic task of a Napoleonic military unit, holding the line and firing at the enemy, mounted troops were not very useful. Quite simply, it was too hard and ineffective to fire from horseback. They could fight dismounted. Most cavalry units were issued short, compact muskets called carbines, and they did have rudimentary training in infantry combat. But this was not ideal, and most commanders avoided it whenever possible. Cavalry were also very expensive and difficult to supply. Horses need to eat a lot. Military mounts worked hard, and most of their preferred food was very low in calories. So every cavalry mount needed an absolutely eye-popping amount of grass or hay to keep operating at peak efficiency. On campaign, the movements of the cavalry were sometimes dictated by their need to find fodder for their horses, rather than any strategic consideration. Horses are temperamental creatures. Every cavalry unit needed support staff dedicated to keeping its mounts healthy. These included veterinarians to treat sick and wounded horses, and farriers, whose full-time job was fixing and replacing horseshoes. There was also all the extra equipment and accessories related to riding, saddles, bridles, etc. 
much of which had to be handmade out of expensive components. Many heavy cavalry regiments wore helmets and even body armor, all of which were expensive to manufacture. Horsemen tended to carry a lot of weapons as well. It wouldn't be uncommon for a cavalry trooper to carry a sword, pistol, carbine, and bayonet, compared to just a bayonet and a musket for the average infantryman. All of this is to say that keeping a single cavalry trooper and his mount supplied, equipped, and in fighting form was many times more expensive and difficult than maintaining his counterpart in the infantry. That meant more money, more support staff, and more complicated logistics. It also took longer to train a new recruit for the cavalry than it did for the infantry. Depending on the time and location, a Napoleonic-era soldier might be deemed ready for infantry service after only a few months of training. Cavalry training was often closer to a year, and some officers claimed a man wasn't truly finished with his training until he'd been in the saddle for several years. People sometimes assume that horseback riding was a common skill in this era, or that riding a horse is easy, akin to being a passenger in a vehicle. Neither is anywhere close to the truth. Cavalry recruits needed extensive training just to feel comfortable on horseback, before they could even begin learning the more complicated maneuvers that would be expected of them in battle or on reconnaissance duty. The horses themselves needed extensive training as well. You couldn't just take any horse off the farm and press it into service. Cavalry mounts were specially bred for the job, and required almost as much training as the soldiers who rode them. Just like human beings, they needed to learn to work together as a unit, and overcome their natural fears of the battlefield. One common training tactic was to fire off pistols and muskets into the air around them as they ate, so they would learn to ignore the sound of gunfire. With armies exploding in size, there was a constant shortage of cavalry mounts in Europe throughout this period. During the 1805 campaign, which we just covered in the narrative, several entire brigades of Napoleon's cavalry had to enter Germany on foot because there weren't enough horses available. Long-serving cavalrymen often formed tight bonds with their horses. They came to see them not only as tools of war, but as companions. There are many stories of horses protecting their wounded or fallen riders, although I do wonder how many of them are the product of wishful thinking. However, those men who were able to stick with a single mount throughout their careers were the lucky ones. Military campaigns were very hard on horses. It was not uncommon for a cavalry unit to lose 40% of its mounts during a single campaign. Just like the infantry, the cavalry was divided into subtypes, each with their own specialization. There was a huge variety of labels for cavalry regiments. They could be dragoons, hussars, cuirassiers, lancers, chasseurs à cheval, uhlans, or chevaux légers, just to name a few. All of these different labels corresponded to unique styles of uniform and equipment. But this whole dazzling array of grand-sounding categories can basically be reduced to three types, heavy, medium, and light cavalry. We already discussed the heavy cavalry a bit in episode 84, covering Austerlitz, where they were center stage for many of the battle's most dramatic moments. That episode gave you a good taste of their specialty, massed charges on the battlefield. 
The heavy cavalry really lived up to their name. They rode the biggest horses and got their pick of the biggest recruits. They were supposed to be irresistible, to plow through the enemy like a runaway freight train, killing or scattering everyone in their path. The most common name for heavy cavalry regiments was cuirassiers, named after the metal body armor they wore on their chests, referred to as a cuirass. In the Grande Armée, there were also heavy cavalry regiments designated as carbineers. Also, a lot of guards' cavalry regiments were classified as heavy cavalry. For instance, the Russian Chevalier Guard, which we discussed in episode 84. The primary weapon of the heavy cavalry was a heavy straight sword. Mostly, they were used for slashing, but in the French army, they were often modified to be used as thrusting weapons, which was generally more effective. Many heavy cavalry regiments wore some form of armor. Almost all were at least equipped with a helmet. The French cuirassiers wore both breastplates and backplates. Most of their opponents wore only breastplates. People sometimes assume this armor was decorative or ceremonial, but it was thick enough to deflect a pistol shot or a slashing sword or even a musket ball fired from long range. The drawbacks were that it was expensive to manufacture and very difficult to move in. Fresh recruits for the armored heavy cavalry regiments needed to ride and exercise in their armor for months before they were comfortable moving around in it. And even veteran heavy cavalry troopers sometimes discarded them in battle, especially if they were knocked from their horses. Their heavy armor and helmets did give the heavy cavalry some degree of protection and a boost to their confidence. But it also made them slower, and put extra strain on their horses. The cuirassiers and carbineers of the Grande Armée were among the most feared of Napoleon's soldiers. They were officially classified as elite troops, and received extra pay. Enemy soldiers were always on the lookout for the distinctive red plumes and horsehair tails that adorned French cuirassier helmets. Although, if you saw them coming towards your position, it was probably already too late. The medium cavalry were, as you can probably guess, in between the heavy and light cavalry. They didn't have a specialization. They were expected to be equally skilled in all the various tasks of the cavalry. This meant they were jacks of all trades, but masters of none. They didn't pack as much of a punch on the charge as the heavy cavalry, and they weren't as nimble or resourceful as the light cavalry on reconnaissance. Many generals of this period, including Napoleon, spurned the medium cavalry whenever possible, preferring to use specialized heavy cavalry for charges and specialized light cavalry for reconnaissance, screening, and pursuit. However, under Napoleon's regime, the French army raised dozens of medium cavalry regiments, so clearly there were some advantages to using these types of troops. For one thing, they were the cheapest form of cavalry. Their uniforms weren't quite as outlandish, their equipment was less elaborate, they took less time to train, and it was easier to find the appropriate horses. A small army, or an army operating with logistical problems, might not be able to maintain full complements of both heavy and light cavalry. In that situation, it was obviously better to have a generalist unit that could carry on the functions of both, even if they didn't do either job quite as well. 
Medium cavalry was also attractive to secondary powers, who had limited budgets and manpower to work with. In all the major armies of the Napoleonic Wars, medium cavalry were usually classified as dragoons. Dragoon units started appearing in European armies in the 17th century. Their original purpose was to act as mobile infantry, using their horses as transportation and doing most of their fighting dismounted, not unlike modern mechanized or motorized infantry. But by the late 18th century, this style of warfare had basically disappeared from Europe, although it was still widespread in the Americas. Commanders on European battlefields had realized their dragoons were much more valuable as versatile mounted soldiers than as fast-moving infantry. This was the least glamorous branch of the cavalry, the least desirable to new recruits, and generally the least respected by their commanders. But, due to their low cost and versatility, you could find medium cavalry on basically every battlefield in every theater of the war. In many cases, they were the most numerous of all mounted units, and, despite their detractors, they did have a lot of success. At the very end of the Napoleonic Wars, when the light and heavy cavalry regiments of the Grande Armée were worn down and depleted, Napoleon's most reliable mounted troops were his dragoons. They didn't get much glory, but the medium cavalry were the backbone of any Napoleonic army's mounted arm. This was especially true for smaller powers and on secondary fronts. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That leaves us with the third and final subtype of mounted troops, the Light Cavalry. To give you some idea of their mission, here's how General Marcelin Marbeau described the skills of an officer named Auguste Aumé, who he considered the best Light Cavalry officer in Europe. Quote, A finer instinct or equal judgment in exploring a country with a glance was never seen. Before riding through a district, he defined the obstacles which the map did not show, foresaw the points where streams, roads, or the smallest paths must emerge, and could draw inferences from the enemy's movements which almost always proved correct. End quote. The light cavalry specialized in fighting away from the main body of the army, often in small skirmishes and raids. Before a battle, they carried out reconnaissance and attempted to foil the enemy's light cavalry attempting their own reconnaissance. After a battle, they either pursued the defeated enemy or attempted to screen their retreating comrades from the enemy's light cavalry, depending on who won. They carried only minimal equipment, often just a light saber and a pistol or two, which enabled them to ride smaller, more nimble horses. 
The Light Cavalry spent a lot of time avoiding the enemy, but they weren't cowards. These units saw a lot of heavy fighting. But they were operating very close to enemy armies, or even behind enemy lines. So, they had to be prepared for the possibility of overwhelming enemy numbers coming over the horizon at any moment. Their small, fast horses enabled them to get out of danger to fight another day. The skirmishes of the Light Cavalry are not immortalized in the same way as the great battles of this era. Even at the time, these small-scale encounters between rival groups of horsemen were often barely recorded. This style of warfare may have lacked the grandness of a mass cavalry charge, but it was dangerous and important, and it could be exciting. A French chasseur officer remembered an encounter with a group of Russian horsemen. Quote, I galloped out alone over the snow-covered plain, pistol in hand, toward a group of Cossacks, and, on reaching about ten paces from them, fired. I saw one of the Russians fall. So far, all was well, but as the party dashed after me, I turned around too short, and my horse fell down in the snow. At this critical moment, I should have been either killed or captured, were it not for my self-possession. I dragged myself quickly from under the horse, which at once sprang to its feet again, and then, passing my arm through the bridle, took a pistol in each hand, ready primed, and aimed them both at the Cossack who was nearest to me. This had the effect of keeping him at a respectful distance, long enough, fortunately, for an officer of the 3rd Hussars to come to my assistance. His intervention gave me time to mount my horse again. In a twinkling, I was galloping off to safety, but was minus my plumed hat, which had fallen in the snow. On reaching our line, I cried out to the Cossacks to restore my hat, which they were waving exultantly from a lance head, and offered to pay them for it. To this, they signaled acceptance, and I threw them a gold coin. End quote. Scenes like that played out whenever two rival Napoleonic armies came within close proximity. Whenever we talk about armies on campaign chasing one another or preparing for a battle, there was always action going on, and the light cavalry were usually right in the thick of it. The ideal heavy cavalry recruit was selected for his size and height, but the ideal light cavalry recruit was selected for his wits. As they carried out their primary missions, scouting, screening, raiding, and skirmishing with enemy light cavalry, these men would often find themselves in situations where they had to seize the initiative and rely on their own judgment, rather than blindly following the orders of their officers. They would be expected to memorize the terrain they scouted, and might be forced to find creative ways to carry out their missions. So, the ideal light cavalryman needed a little intelligence and cunning, on top of the aggression and unshakable confidence that was expected of all mounted troops. The light cavalry went by many names. They might be chasseurs à cheval in the French army, meaning mounted hunters. The Austrian army actually used a French word for many of their light cavalry regiments, chevaux léger, meaning light horse. In the British and American armies, Light Dragoon was a common label. The famous Cossack troops of the Russian army are classified as light cavalry as well. But by far the most famous sub-branch of the light cavalry was the Hussars. 
Basically every European military of this period included hussar regiments. We've already talked about the attitude that set the cavalry apart from the rest of the army. Supreme confidence, aggression, and audacity on the battlefield, and a taste for drinking, smoking, womanizing, and adventure off the battlefield. This stereotype was strongest among the hussars. They were also probably the most fashionable and romanticized of all the various types of soldiers of this period. The attitude was a big part of it, but so were the colorful and outlandish uniforms, and their reputation for fearlessness on the battlefield. Hussar-style cavalry has its origins in the 16th century, in the Balkans in the bloody, contested borderlands between the Ottoman Empire and the various Christian states of southeastern Europe, there were often periods of low-intensity warfare, characterized by light cavalry raids into enemy territory. Hussar troops had evolved quite a bit as the years passed and the concept spread across Europe. The semi-professional border ruffians of the early modern period probably would not have recognized their fellow hussars in the Grande Armée, but Napoleonic hussar uniforms did retain some Eastern European features, which gave them an exotic appearance. There was even an Eastern European-inspired hairstyle that was very popular among hussars for much of the Napoleonic Wars. Long hair tied back in a ponytail, with two small braids hanging down on each side of the face. These braids were called cotonettes. This style was usually paired with a mustache, curled up at each end, of course. You might be trying to picture that and thinking, that can't possibly be right, it's too weird. But I promise you, it really was that weird. Go ahead and Google Hussar hairstyle and you'll see what I mean. Perhaps fortunately, this haircut started to fall out of fashion during the latter half of the Napoleonic Wars, and by the time of Waterloo it had basically vanished. It wasn't just the hair. Hussar uniforms were very outlandish, even compared to the gaudy uniforms worn by the rest of the cavalry. Every regiment used a different color scheme, but they often included incredibly bright colors sometimes including neon shades that you don't often associate with military uniforms. Whatever the color, hussar uniforms were absolutely covered with gold or silver braiding, often all the way from neck to ankle. Hussar uniforms were very tight with shortcut jackets. This made them look more imposing, and it also showed off their muscles, which I'm sure contributed to their reputation as womanizers. There was a saying about the hussars, quote, In every country, they are hated by the husband, but loved by the wife. End quote. I sometimes feel bad for the other light cavalry. Hussar regiments were generally not considered elite. All the light cavalry did the same work and received the same pay. But the hussars got all the glory. And the men were well aware of this. There are several cases of hussar regiments being reclassified as other types of light cavalry, provoking protests from the officers and soldiers. When it came to recruiting, the hussar regiments were generally among the most desirable in the entire army. I sometimes wonder how many favors were promised and bribes dispensed all across Europe, 
just so some influential person's son could wear the bright, gold-encrusted uniform of a hussar, instead of the slightly duller uniform of a less fashionable regiment. But it wasn't all fun and games. Part of the reputation of the hussars came from their fancy uniforms and hard partying, but another part of it came from their almost suicidal bravery in combat. In fact, I think these were two sides of the same coin. Hussars embraced death and lived every day like it was their last. Perhaps the most famous hussar of the era, General Antoine de la Salle, once said that any hussar who wasn't dead by 30 was a blackguard. Although he himself made it to 34, when he was killed leading a charge at the Battle of Wagram. Another notable subtype of light cavalry is the lancer. At the beginning of the wars of the French Revolution, the lance had mostly fallen out of fashion in Western Europe. However, it was still commonly used in Eastern Europe, probably most famously and skillfully by the Poles and the Russian Cossacks. Napoleon was quite impressed by the lance, and began raising lancer regiments into the French army as well. Most historians agree this decision was influenced by the Poles, although some also credit his experiences fighting against the Mamluks in Egypt. Soon, other European armies followed suit, and by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the lance was in a renaissance. All the European great powers maintained lancer regiments until the First World War. The lance is all about reach. At roughly 10 feet, or 3 meters long, a lancer was always guaranteed to get the first strike in hand-to-hand combat, if he could hit his target. That sounds like a considerable advantage, but there were drawbacks as well. First, it was a single-use weapon. Lances either shattered or got hopelessly stuck into the enemy at the first blow. The lance was also very heavy and awkward, and difficult to use properly. Medieval knights trained with the lance from childhood, but Napoleonic cavalry recruits might be expected to use a lance in battle less than a year after their first time ever holding one. There is a lot of debate over the effectiveness of lancers. Obviously, Napoleon rated them very highly, but not everyone agreed. They were originally conceived of as an anti-cavalry weapon. Their ability to strike first would, theoretically, allow them to take down heavily armored and much more expensive cuirassiers. But some commanders felt they were actually more effective against infantry, because the lance had a much longer reach than a musket with a bayonet. Others believed the lance was totally overrated, an impractical weapon that needed far too much training and experience to be used effectively at any significant scale. Perhaps they had a point, but there is no denying that well-trained, experienced lancer units achieved some incredible successes during the Napoleonic Wars. Probably most notably at the Battle of Somosierra, when a relatively small group of Napoleon's cavalry, led by the elite Polish lancers of the Imperial Guard, managed to win the battle almost single-handedly with one of the greatest cavalry charges in military history. You see these kinds of debates all the time in discussions of cavalry from this era. It seems every officer had his own opinion on what types of troops and tactics were best for any given scenario. It almost reminds me of the way people talk about sports, 
Are lancers or cuirassiers better in hand-to-hand combat? Is the 4-4-2 formation better than the 4-3-3 formation in soccer? Is speed the most important factor in a charge, or is it maintaining formation? Is the sacrifice bunt ever worth it in baseball? You get the impression people really enjoyed these debates, just like sports fans do today, even if these were matters of life and death. But the point is, you could find someone to disagree with almost everything I've said so far in this episode. For instance, this is not the orthodox opinion, but I have seen it argued that light cavalry were actually better at massed battlefield charges than heavy cavalry. The theory goes that they were so much faster that they were able to close the distance with the enemy much more quickly. If true, that would mean basically every great power of the period was wasting its money raising these expensive heavy cavalry regiments. However, I've also seen it argued that light cavalry were almost useless on the battlefield, because their lightweight curved sabers were rarely capable of landing a killing blow. There are always differing schools of thought on any question of military tactics and doctrine, but it seems especially true for the cavalry of this era. I think that might be because so much of the cavalry's success depended on intangible factors, like morale, momentum, confidence, aggression, and fear. As I said before, commanding horsemen in battle during this period was really more art than science. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Cavalry were basically the same in every European army of this period. Every military relied on them to take on the same types of missions, and used similar classifications, although the terminology sometimes varies a bit. However, there were some national differences. The Prussian and British militaries put less emphasis on mounted warfare, generally relying a bit more on their infantry. As a result, you often find British or Prussian armies containing slightly fewer cavalry units than you might expect from the other great powers. As a result of their focus on infantry and artillery, the Prussian and British horsemen were often considered inferior to those of the other great powers. That said, both armies included elite cavalry regiments with fearsome reputations and impressive records. But in general, their mounted troops did sometimes underperform compared to their rivals. The British cavalry were particularly notorious for poor discipline. After a charge, 
cavalry units were supposed to reform and wait for new orders. This could make them much more effective. You might remember this from our episode on the Battle of Marengo, where the French cavalry charged, steamrolled through the Austrian lines, then reformed in the enemy rear and charged again, slamming through their lines a second time coming the other direction. But British cavalry were notorious for refusing to reform after a charge. They often became carried away and would continue riding after the enemy, effectively removing themselves from the battle as they became increasingly scattered and rode further and further from the action. A British officer described the scene after a charge when the commander of the cavalry, General Sir John Slade, quote, rode in every direction, begging the men to form and rally, but it was in vain that he threatened them, entreated them, and, finally, offered any man fifty pounds if he would rally. End quote. For the record, those fifty pounds would be worth something like three thousand dollars in today's money. The French cavalry were generally considered the best of this period, which is remarkable given how hard they had been hit by the revolution. In basically every army, the cavalry officers were the most aristocratic and politically conservative of the three branches of service. We talked many times in our early episodes about the exodus of counter-revolutionary officers from the French army in the 1790s, both voluntary into exile and involuntary to prison or the guillotine. In the early days of the War of the First Coalition, there were even cases of entire French cavalry regiments defecting en masse to join the Allies. As you might expect under these circumstances, the remains of the French cavalry performed pretty poorly in the early 1790s. It took time for the fresh officers and new recruits to learn their business. But by this point in our story, they had more than compensated for the losses of the Revolution. In fact, one reason Napoleon was so successful in 1805 was that his horsemen consistently outclassed the Russian and Austrian cavalry. That meant he had much better information on the Allied forces than they did on the Grande Armée. The Allies might have known better than to fight Napoleon at Austerlitz if they'd had good reconnaissance and knew the Grande Armée was in good condition and had recently been reinforced. But... They were not able to penetrate the French cavalry screen, and so were forced to make assumptions to disastrous results. So, what made the French cavalry so good? Experience played a role. Ten years of near-constant warfare against a whole host of enemies had taught them a lot of lessons. They were also better trained, thanks to their years at the Camp of Boulogne. And they had all the same advantages as the rest of the French army when it came to things like modern logistics, merit-based promotion, and openness to new doctrines, all of which we've discussed in past episodes. But among the officers of this era, the general consensus seems to be the main things that set the French cavalry apart were intangible. Morale, confidence, fighting spirit, the will to win— at this point in our story, Napoleon's horsemen were riding high, but as the narrative continues, that fighting spirit will be sorely tested, as their missions grow more and more challenging and the casualties begin to pile up. 
Their main rivals, the Austrian and Russian cavalry, faced a difficult task. By this point in the narrative, it had become clear that they were deficient in training, experience, and doctrine. They would be forced to learn bloody lessons by facing the superior French horsemen in combat. But this is not to say they were incompetent. The cavalry of both militaries was generally well regarded. The Austrian army included a lot of Hungarians and men from the Balkans, whose ancestors had been pioneers in light cavalry warfare. Some had been raised from birth to fight in the saddle. We discussed some of the elite Russian cavalry during our episode on the Battle of Austerlitz. They ultimately failed on that day, but I don't think anyone would deny that their desperate charge on the Protzen Heights near the end of the battle was the stuff of legends. The Russian cavalry also included the famous Cossacks, some of the most skilled and fearsome light cavalry the world has ever seen. The Cossacks were a bit of a throwback. They had adopted a lot of modern military methods and organization, but they did still have one foot in a much older style of warfare, carried on by generations of their ancestors. For the Cossacks, war was not a temporary state of affairs, but a way of life. The Cossacks were far more than just another type of cavalry soldier. They and their families formed a distinct community within the Russian Empire, with its own culture and traditions, and even its own laws. In exchange for a large degree of autonomy from mainstream Russian society, these communities provided troops for the emperor's army. Generally speaking, the Cossacks were fiercely independent and individualistic. They took the cavalryman's ethos of supreme confidence and contempt for danger to new levels. I'm no sociologist, but I think it would be fair to say that these attitudes permeated all of Cossack society. Boys in Cossack communities learned to ride from infancy and were introduced to the lance, saber, and pistol as soon as they were big enough to hold them. Everything in their lives, even down to the basic fundamentals like culture, education, and family life, was geared towards preparing them to be light cavalry soldiers. The results were very impressive. Napoleon himself once said, quote, Cossacks are the best light troops among all that exist. If I had them in my army, I would go through the whole world with them. End quote. In the latter part of the Napoleonic Wars, the cry of Cossacks was sometimes enough to produce panic among French troops. Cossack units did have their drawbacks. Their discipline was very poor. They could always be counted on to fight, but not always to follow orders. They were notorious for their poor behavior off the battlefield. It seems many Cossacks considered themselves entitled to rob and loot from civilians as they pleased, even in friendly territory. More serious crimes like rape and murder were not uncommon either. They also lost a lot of their effectiveness in mass charges. Cossacks rode small, nimble horses and were used to fighting as individuals or in loose formation, so they didn't pack much of a punch in a conventional cavalry charge. Still, when used properly, they were one of the most dangerous weapons in any Russian general's arsenal. Judging by accounts from veterans, I don't think any of the enemies faced by Napoleon's armies struck more fear into the hearts of the French than the Cossacks. 
Although it should be said, this was partially due to their fighting abilities, and partially due to their reputation for cruelty to prisoners. It's hard to overstate the importance of light cavalry in Napoleonic warfare. You could almost think of them as playing the same role as air power on the modern battlefield. Reconnaissance and screening could give one side a huge advantage before the battle even started, and an energetic pursuit of a defeated enemy could mean the difference between a minor limited victory and a complete triumph. As Napoleon himself once said, quote, Without cavalry, battles are without result. End quote. However, the signature cavalry maneuver of the Napoleonic Wars was the mass charge. For the cavalrymen, a charge was both exhilarating and terrifying. A surprising number of veterans' accounts agree that the feeling of taking part in a charge cannot be described in words, and I guess we'll have to take them at their word. A charge could get going as fast as 14 miles an hour, or 22.5 kilometers an hour. That might not sound like much, but keep in mind, this was about as fast as a person could go in this era, unless they felt like jumping off a very tall building. The charge was the natural environment of the heavy cavalry, but almost every mounted soldier of the Napoleonic Wars would be expected to take part in one. A lot of charges were not as dramatic as you might imagine. Sometimes, all a cavalry unit needed to do was form up and begin to trot towards the enemy, to force them to fall back. And this was totally expected. This was one of the reasons army commanders kept cavalry around. The simple threat of a charge could be enough to brush away enemy skirmishers, or check enemy infantry advancing without support. Once they got going, a cavalry charge was all about momentum, confidence, speed, and high morale. But it wasn't just these intangible factors that made a charge successful. There was a method to a cavalry charge. General Maximilien Foy, who served under Napoleon, put it this way, quote, In cavalry service, it is not sufficient for the soldiers to be brave and the horses good. There must be science and unity. End quote. Cavalry troopers needed iron discipline, as well as courage and confidence. They had to be prepared to unleash all their aggression on the enemy, but also to keep that aggression in check until just the right moment. A good cavalry officer needed to know how to help his men do that, how to feed their aggression, but also how to manage it, so it peaked just at the moment of impact. And so, a proper cavalry charge developed in stages. Upon hearing the order, the men did not simply rush at the enemy as fast as possible. They started slow. The leader of the charge would increase the speed bit by bit as they advanced, building the momentum. A good cavalry officer sought to strike a balance. He wanted his men to be as close to full speed as possible at the moment of impact, this maximized the shock value and momentum of the charge. It also ensured that if any of his men began to lose their nerve, they would be unable to stop their horses and pull back in time. However, speed had to be balanced against the need to keep the unit's formation together. Some horses are faster than others. Some men are more eager or better riders than others. The longer the unit charged at full speed, the more the formation would degrade, and the more disorganized it would become. 
A charge would lose a lot of its force if the horsemen made impact piecemeal, rather than all at once in a single wave. And there was always the chance for conditions to change at the last moment. There were cases during the Napoleonic Wars in which charges had to be redirected on the fly to respond to some new threat. Cavalry officers also had to be on the lookout for rough terrain. An unseen stream or a patch of rough ground could spell disaster for charging horsemen if they tried to cross it at full gallop. It was only possible for the leaders of a charge to respond to these potential threats if the unit was moving slower than a full gallop and totally under the control of its officers. The usual target of a cavalry charge was infantry. After all, they made up at least three-quarters of any Napoleonic army. As we've discussed in many past episodes, the usual tactic employed by infantry units facing a cavalry charge was to form a square. Square formations have no rear or flank, and even a well-trained cavalry mount will not charge into a solid wall of raised bayonets. So, under normal circumstances, a unit that successfully formed a square before a cavalry charge made impact could expect to survive the encounter with relatively few casualties, as the horsemen swarmed harmlessly around the formation. A lot of what held a square together was trust. A man kept his eyes forward and did his job, if he had confidence that behind him, on the other side of the square, his comrades were doing the same thing. A British officer put it this way, quote, Squares have a moral strength in proportion to the mutual acquaintance of the men and officers who compose them. Men of the same company stand better together than those of mixed companies, and men of the same regiment better than those of different corps. End quote. There were ways to break a square. Usually this was done by creating a hole in the formation, by causing casualties, or somehow forcing the infantry to scatter. Once a hole was created, the horsemen could stream into the square, and it was all over. Infantry squares with poor morale or discipline sometimes broke themselves out of sheer terror. They all knew, on an intellectual level, that there was nothing more dangerous in the face of cavalry than to turn tail and run. But this was the psychological power of a cavalry charge. It could make men ignore their good sense and condemn themselves to defeat and, likely, death or serious injury. Infantry who were unable to form a square in the face of a cavalry charge did not usually fare well. There were engagements in which infantry in line formation repelled cavalry charges with well-timed firepower, but this was not a common occurrence. Cavalry against artillery was a bit of an odd matchup. The firepower of the cannon was particularly deadly against cavalry, because a horse and rider make such a big target. But, on the other hand, artillery of this era was so slow and difficult to move that attacking cavalry could sometimes use their mobility to strike an enemy battery from the flanks or rear, where they would be safe from the deadly canister fire and grape shot. To move any significant distance, cannons of this period needed to be limbered, that is, partially disassembled and packed up, along with all the various tools and accessories used by the gun crews. This was a very time-consuming process. 
the best artillerymen in the world were not capable of doing so fast enough to respond to the threat of advancing cavalry. So when cavalry and artillery faced off, whichever unit went into the encounter with the upper hand usually won a lopsided victory. If cavalry could catch an artillery battery while it was reloading, or approach it from the rear or side, the artillerymen usually had little choice but to hide under their equipment and hope nobody noticed them. But any cavalry unit that found itself in the sights of loaded artillery pieces would face a deadly slaughter. It was possible for well-disciplined cavalry to make successful frontal assaults on artillery, especially if they had the element of surprise, but the results were often deadly. Even a poorly trained artillery battery would have the opportunity to fire at least one volley of grapeshot or canister fire into the approaching horsemen, and that type of firepower could tear a cavalry unit apart, even if its men were brave enough to push the charge home. Some of the most awe-inspiring and chaotic fighting of the Napoleonic Wars occurred when two cavalry units met in open combat. Cavalry charges operated almost according to the laws of physics. Sometimes the best way to stop their momentum was with an equal and opposite force, the countercharge. We saw this twice at the Battle of Austerlitz, and both times the French countercharge was able to contain and push back the Allied horsemen. Of course, a countercharge was only an option if there happened to be cavalry on the scene. Charges happened so fast that it was often impossible to bring in horsemen from other parts of the battlefield. When a countercharge was ordered, the two forces didn't always meet. With both sides advancing at high speed, this was a very dangerous game of chicken. Usually, one side decided discretion was the better part of valor and turned away. A British officer described this phenomenon, quote, Cavalry seldom meet each other in a charge executed at speed. The one party generally turns before joining issue with the enemy. The fact is, every cavalry soldier approaching another at speed must feel that if they come into contact at that pace, they both go down, and probably break every limb in their bodies. To strike his adversary, the cavalryman must close, and, the chances are, he receives a blow in turn for the one he deals out. There is a natural repugnance to close in deadly strife, and cavalry soldiers, unless they feel confident in their riding, can trust their horse, and know their weapons are formidable, will not readily plunge into the enemy's ranks. End quote. Still, there were engagements in which both sides pressed home the charge. Contrary to all appearances, for most horsemen, there was usually not a deadly collision. The horses of both units would naturally try to avoid each other, and so the front ranks of the charge usually rode past each other, trying to land blows as their opponents whipped by at full speed. One veteran described the effect as being like two hands clasping together with fingers interlocking. Once the two sides were engaged in hand-to-hand combat, describing this type of fight becomes difficult. Accounts from people who observed these engagements all remark that it was almost impossible to actually see what was going on through all the dust and chaos. A Russian cavalry officer remembered one of these cavalry-versus-cavalry clashes at the Battle of Libert-Volkwitz in 1813. Quote, 
The French deployed fifty paces away and charged at us. Lances, sabers, and swords clashed against one another. Many were thrown from their mounts in the first shock and trampled underfoot. At one moment, we were charging forward with a great oorah. The next, we were riding for our lives, and the oorahs had become cries of fear. We overthrew them and were overthrown in our turn. To the right and left, to front and rear, all we could see was our men and the enemy hacking and stabbing at one another, with neither side gaining the upper hand. Both sides fought with great bitterness. This was how I imagined the ancient battles, man against man. The stronger could be sure of his victory. I don't know whether it is courage or the need to find a quick death, and so to escape the constant fear of death, which drives one on. Foaming at the mouth, one charges rashly into the enemy formation. End quote. A cavalry-on-cavalry melee was a terrifying experience, and incredibly deadly. But usually they were mercifully short. Once one side got the upper hand, their opponents, understandably, got out of there as fast as they could. Typically, this didn't take long, sometimes only a few minutes, although I'm sure it felt like an eternity to those involved. Many cavalrymen of the Napoleonic era saw themselves as latter-day knights, carrying the torch for romance, honor, chivalry, and old-fashioned martial virtue in an increasingly gray and regimented world. The truth is somewhat more complicated. They were key components of a modern military machine. For all the glamour and romance of mounted warfare, None of the cuirassiers in their shining armor or the dashing hussars would have been very effective if they weren't backed up by cutting-edge logistics and organizational systems. Of course, you could just as easily say that for all the bureaucratic marvels of the new administrative states emerging during this period, none of them would have been able to defend or propagate themselves without brave men who were willing to launch themselves into the ranks of the enemy with saber in hand. Before I close out today, I'd like to give credit to two books that provided a lot of the material for this episode, Swords Around a Throne by John Elting, and Tactics and the Experience of Battle in the Age of Napoleon by Rory Muir. If you're interested in more of this kind of material, general knowledge about the militaries of this era, rather than narratives about specific events, I would highly recommend both books. Next time, we'll dive back into the narrative. 1806 would turn out to be almost as momentous as 1805, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>